Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Serverless Show podcast, where we talk about everything that's new in serverless and serverless security. As usual with me is Tom Malamed, our director of security research here in Protico. And this week, we've got a really special guest. Uh, really excited to have him on. We've been waiting for a while, Alex Glickson. Alex, uh, I'll let Alex introduce himself in a second, but uh, Alex spent about uh, 300 years in IBM working on everything that creates the cloud. Uh, he also likes to collect degrees. He's got a bunch from the Technion and everything and anything, I think, uh, an MBA and an MSc and probably uh, probably you know, learned how to cut hair or something once as well, uh, which I certainly could use. Um, so Alex, if you could just tell us a little bit about the, your, your background, what you, do, what you did at IBM, and then particularly, how did you become the cloud guru at Carnegie Mellon University? Thanks for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure be, being on this podcast. Uh, so, so my name is Alex Glickson. I've been working on virtualization and cloud infrastructure topics for the last uh, 15 years or so. Even before it was called cloud, we, we had a, a prototype of a bare metal cloud roughly 15 to 20 years ago on x86. So it is really exciting to see those topics uh, evolve so, so rapidly in the industry. And most of the time I've spent at IBM Research in Israel. And so since last year, uh, I'm in the Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, uh, well, technically on a leave of absence from IBM. And here at Carnegie Mellon, uh, they were essentially looking for some cloud expertise. And uh, I'm working on three fronts here. One is uh, with students uh, that uh, want to learn about cloud computing and serverless. Uh, the second uh, is uh, the research teams. So there is some excellent research organization here at Carnegie Mellon. And some of that research is dealing with cloud computing topics. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy to take part in that. And the third area, which is uh, very different from, from, the from the first and the second, is working with the faculty that are actually developing applications. So apparently in, in academia, there are uh, lots of applications being developed for teaching purposes. And I'm trying to help them to do it in a kind of cloud native and modern fashion. Essentially, my passion in the last couple of years is uh, serverless. Uh, both on the public cloud side with uh, things like uh, Amazon Lambda naturally and their IBM cloud functions. And also in the private cloud space, uh, things like Apache OpenWiz and more recently technologies like Kubernetes and Knative. So I really like how this ecosystem is evolving and I like to test the limits of serverless and to explore what use cases might be a good or not so good fit for serverless and essentially to help this space evolve and to include more variety of workloads. Well, thanks, thanks for the intro, Alex. Uh, we're going to get back to some of those topics about kind of, uh, you know, where this, where this can head and what kind of use cases work well. Uh, before that, I thought we'd start with uh, something that was in the news obviously recently, which is the IBM acquisition of Red Hat. Uh, so obviously that's, that's, that's big news for IBM and for Red Hat and for the rest of us. But I wanted to ask you kind of what does that mean in your view, Alex, on, in the serverless space? Uh, what changes do you think you, you'd expect uh, there? You know, how does that affect OpenWhisk? Does that, does that put Knative in a new space? Uh, what's the focus going to be in terms of IBM, Red Hat's new focus on serverless? And, and do you think that's more of a, a, a private cloud, you know, on-prem thing, or is it going to be more of a, a public cloud as well? Kind of, where do you see that heading in general? Yeah, so I think that, that's a good question. So 
at least to me, this uh, acquisition was not a complete surprise because IBM and Red Hat have been business partners and, te and technology partners for many years. Also in the, uh, in the serverless space, they've been working closely together in the last year, year or two around the Apache OpenWhisk. As you might know, Red Hat decided to, uh, to use OpenWhisk as uh, the technology for their serverless offering. And a large part of the, the collaboration uh, uh, was around uh, better integrating OpenWhisk with Kubernetes and with Red Hat's offering around Kubernetes, uh, OpenShift. And I think now it will continue and uh, maybe accelerate a bit. Probably around the serverless technologies, this merger will not have too much impact, so the, the, that work will continue. But on the business side, I think it will create larger mass of activities on the hybrid cloud uh, side, specifically uh, with serverless running both in the, on, in the private cloud and in the public clouds, and some use cases that may potentially involve coordination between those environments in a more streamlined and straightforward manner. So I think that's uh, really exciting. And uh, of course, uh, there are lots of different other aspects to that acquisition related to open source in general and uh, Kubernetes ecosystem uh, and cloud and so on. But I think specifically for the uh, serverless space, uh, things are probably going to be kind of to continue business as usual with some improvements here and there. And, and maybe asking so the, the reverse of that question. I saw, I saw an article from uh, Tom Noll over on Tech Target around uh, the big public cloud providers pushing into more hybrid non-prem, uh, with, with, particularly with serverless, but not only with serverless. Um, do, do you think that they have uh, a chance there? Does IBM have a huge advantage in, in the kind of on-prem hybrid space? Or do you think uh, companies like Microsoft and Amazon can really own the more hybrid usage of the cloud, particularly with serverless? Yeah, so I think the public cloud vendors are certainly trying to get into on-prem. And there are also some success stories with, for example, Amazon having some private regions for the US government and so on. And on the other side of the market, there are all those so-called legacy private cloud solutions based on OpenStack and I guess primarily targeting old workloads that are now virtualized and are being managed in a sort of a cloud fashion. Uh, but I think the real shift will happen when there are much more cloud native applications. And there are some natural reasons for companies, especially for larger companies, uh, to want those applications run off the public cloud. It could be either for cost reasons, for example, or companies that are large enough, it might be economically viable for them to bring their, their workloads back to their data center because they have enough economy of scale on their own. Or it could be for regulation reasons like privacy compliance that, uh, for example, they have to run certain workloads or keep certain data in a certain geography. Or it could be because of some location constraints for connectivity, bandwidth, latency, and so on. So I think there are very good reasons for new applications to continue running, not in the public cloud, but in, in some other data centers potentially owned by other companies. But the economics there is very different, right? So I think it's still an open question whether 
the public cloud providers have a better chance to adopt, to build an offering that would work well for, for the private cloud, or maybe companies that have lots of experience building on-prem solutions, maybe they will grow those solutions to be efficient enough and scalable enough and so on so that they can compete with the solutions uh, with the public cloud essentially in terms of uh, scalability manageability efficiency and so on and obviously vendors that are i mean there are not so many vendors that have uh, credentials in in those both markets so ibm I i think is a bit struggling with the public cloud offering and Google and Amazon don't, don't have a very strong per, or at all presence uh, on-prem. And I think my, Microsoft in that sense is in a quite unique position that they seem to be doing well in both. So we'll see whether they're able to, tra- to translate that into a successful hybrid cloud story. Interesting. Good take. So let's shift gears. I wanted to talk about um, our friends at Epsigon, another uh, Israeli startup in the serverless space, uh, they just announced uh, exiting stealth mode and kind of the, the availability of their platform. Uh, Epscon, for those who don't know, it, you know, has a sort of an observability and monitoring platform for serverless applications. And it's got a you know, sort of very deep analysis uh, of your application structure. What's going on? What are you paying for? You know, what's, what's, what's slowing you down and what's happening? And um, so, I, I, first of all, kudos to them. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a nice product. We've seen it where, you know, we really think it's a, it's a great direction. I, I was curious for your take on kind of how important this, these kinds of tools and, and technologies are for the success of the space. And then also, what would your take be, Alex, on what's, what's still missing? Like what, what are the things in terms of, you know, uh, the technologies that people need in order to get going, whether it's, you know, CI, CD, uh, you know, testing, debugging, uh, observing, uh, you know, efficiency, obviously security is an area we, we focus on, but what are the pieces you would say are missing uh, aside from that in this place? Uh, yeah, so I think uh, this is a, a very nice tool, Epsigon. I Actually, I tried it in one of my uh, experiments with, uh, with the deep learning solution on, on Lambda, and then it really helped me to understand what is going on. So uh, when you design, your application on Lambda or other serverless technologies, it inherently becomes more distributed and more event-driven. So it is really difficult to to understand what is going on. So like in my case, I implemented all the individual pieces and then I did something that was supposed to trigger a workflow and I didn't have any place to go and see whether it is actually working. So what uh, Epsigon and similar tools provide is this observability of uh, understanding what is going on, uh, ability to, uh, to dig into particular aspects of the application, especially taking into, the, into account the distributed and the event-driven nature. So I think this is really critical, especially for larger applications and for applications that are running for a long time that need to be monitored and managed. Uh, so I think that's uh, definitely an area that is growing and will continue to grow. And I think if we can, if we compare this to the microservices platforms or in general to the container-based platforms like Kubernetes, I think one of the reasons that Kubernetes is doing pretty well is because pretty much from day one, they uh, paid attention to manageability and monitoring and tooling around the actual runtime capabilities. And it sounds like a similar need 
it's uh, are critical also in the serverless space so regarding areas that i think uh, are would continue evolving in the future so observability is certainly one of them i think other areas including include the debugging for example it's uh, really non trivial to debug and uh, in uh, individual pieces of of an event driven architecture in general i think another area that uh, is likely to evolve going forward is and i guess it's not only about tooling but also about the runtime itself is some sort of uh, additional models runtime models maybe somewhere in between long running and event driven like for example things like k native i think is a, is a good example so there are some behaviors which are triggered by events individual events individual requests but there are also some uh, easy ways to maintain a state, for example, over several invocations of the same function. So I think it's a combination of uh, uh, better tooling to enable uh, those more complex applications that involve event-driven and long-running things, uh, and also perhaps uh, some additional runtime components to to enable this. And Tal, let me ask you, uh, particularly about the Epsigon uh, um, uh, release, how similar and how different is it to some of the stuff we're doing? I mean, I think when I looked at it uh, early on, it, it seemed like to a large degree, there's a lot of similarity in terms of how they collect data, what they're looking for. Uh, but then obviously, you know, we end up trying to do different, solve different problems. How do you see that? So, yeah, I met Epsigon a few months ago at a conference. We both uh, gave a talk. It was actually, they have a nice tool. Uh, I saw it there. It looked very promising and it solves a big problem there. And many other of the talks that were given there were talked about uh, how do you know what you're doing in the environment. So naturally, when you go to the serverless, you get everything uh, given by the provider and you don't really see or you, you can't really know what's going inside uh, their environment. So it basically comes to, sell, uh, to solve the same issue from a different angle or from a different point of view of what what is going on in the environment and i think the the transparency or the ability to let the user get uh, the observability into the account of what's what's in his account what's happening either that yeah it's debugging or understanding what's what's the how the flow is going or in our point of view is the security. So basically it's it's the same thing that where the everyone tries to solve is giving the visibility to the user, but everyone looks at it different. So we believe security is is, is an important issue, obviously also debugging and uh, also try to solve how do you see the cost of your account. So yeah, they're all important and they all try to solve uh, to give the visibility to the user. Yeah, as, as, a, as a consumer of uh, cloud services in serverless, I can say that billing optimization can be very important. Um, there are some months we, we definitely could use that. Um, cool. So let's, let's shift gears from, from Epsigon. And I, I want to talk about a different announcement I noticed, which was a project called uh, NumpyRen. Um, so Alex, can you talk a little bit about uh, what that is in terms of uh, linear algebra on, on serverless? And, and in general, I mean, I know you did some work uh, at Carnegie Mellon and maybe even before that on do these platforms map well to, you know, complex algorithmic problems, distributed problems like deep learning. And, and so then what you take on that, what works well, what doesn't. And, and for the things that don't work well yet, you talk about what, what needs to happen to enable that. 
Uh, yes, I think uh, this is a very interesting experiment and also the baseline of it, the PyRun project itself is, a, uh, is, a, is very cool. So it essentially allows you to transparently run distributed computations on Lambda without even being aware that this is running on Lambda. Uh, so I think this is really nice. And now, now this is, uh, it is being expanded to additional uh, algorithmic capabilities. Uh, so we, we took a similar, conceptually similar approach and we tried to run deep learning on Lambda. And I think it was an uh, inter in interesting experience as well. So what we did was in model training, you're essentially processing lots of incoming data and you're calculating new model parameters and you're updating the model uh, based on those calculations. So, so we built an architecture that uh, parallelizes that process in a way that it can be efficiently deployed on a solution like uh, Lambda. So it is it's kind of similar to the MapReduce approach that uh, Pyran is implementing, but in Pyran you don't really have a good way to do the reduce because in the general case you need to collect all the outputs from the from the map phase to aggregate them together, and this is not something something that can be done on Lambda because of the resource constraints that Lambda has. So, and specifically in deep learning case, we found a way to do the this aggregation phase in a parallel manner as well. So it, it did map well to this uh, lightweight, elastic set of workers that we could get with, with Lambda. So the part that didn't work so well was related to state management. Uh, so all those uh, workers and aggregators, they have lots of state that they need to exchange. So for example, in our case, we worked with a model which is roughly 200 megabytes of size. And all those, and we had like hundreds of workers and reducers that had to exchange some updates to, to, the, to that model. So we ended up implementing that uh, using S3, which is, I think, also the, the way uh, Byron is, work, is, is doing this. So S3 is extremely scalable and efficient, but uh, it was kind of waste, I think, because we ended up transferring terabytes of data, of transient data, to and from S3. And because of that, also, our solution was not as efficient as it could have been if we were running on a, like, on a fixed cluster. And... Obviously, it also starts to be rather expensive when you go beyond, beyond a certain scale. So I think uh, for this sort of workloads, something like Lambda is very attractive in terms of uh, fine-grained elasticity. And in some cases, it is very important to be able to quickly increase your capacity or decrease it and pay just for the resources that you're using. But uh, applications which are more stateful in nature or that are more clustered applications that need to communicate between them. I think there is a lots of potential here of introducing, introducing additional middleware that can be used to coordinate between those lambdas and to exchange state, exchange data, and so on. I think, so Amazon step function, I think, is certainly an interesting step, not only for this purpose, but also for other purposes. But this is definitely an, a nice way to coordinate 
multiple lambda functions that are you have some application state that spans across multiple lambda functions and certainly across multiple lambda function invocations. I think that's one of the areas that would be interesting to see what offerings evolve over time to make those computations still very rapidly elastic, but more stateful, more more services that uh, uh, make it easy for those computations to man- maintain some sort of uh, state. Right. Makes sense. And, and maybe focusing in just on one of those that we, we see happening now is maybe the smallest step in that direction is, is Lambda increasing their maximum timeout to uh, 15 minutes. So, so obviously in terms of being able to do more work in a single worker and then therefore maybe perhaps <clears throat> Some of the communication, which is, is you know, is, is difficult. Um, you know, that that's probably a good thing. Uh, do you, where, where do you see that headed? Do you think the end game here is that uh, serverless really ends up being something like Fargate with event triggers? Uh, you know, maybe sort of you know, harkening back to what you said earlier about kind of Knative, uh, you know, spanning both of those worlds at the same time. Do you think that's where it's headed? And and potentially, I have this. I'm wondering if is this potentially going to hurt software design for serverless in the sense that some of these constraints, like five minutes, forced us into architectures that were more serverless and scaled better, that worked better. And as you know, we start un- unraveling some of these requirements and dialing them, dialing them back, we're going to slip back into some of our bad habits in terms of how we build software. Is, is that a fear or am I, am I just uh, overreacting? Yeah, so I think the reality is that there are lots of different applications, different workloads, different use cases, and they are naturally have different requirements. Uh, So I think it's a natural process of trying to address more of those of that variety uh, by Lambda in this case. And as I mentioned before, I think, uh, at least in my opinion, there will be additional developments in this space to try and address additional workloads, both in the event-driven world and the more long-running microservices kind of architectures and the combination of the two. So for example, today on Lambda, you just, the resource allocation for Lambda functions is proportional. So you just pick a memory size and the CPU and network are allocated proportionally to that. And in many cases, it doesn't really make much sense. So for example, in some of our experiments, in some cases we we needed lots of CPU cycles so we ended up essentially paying for lots of memory that we don't use and vice versa. In some cases, the workload is very memory intensive and the CPU is idle. I think the same process that happened with EC2 like 10 years ago, I think it is inevitable also uh, in this space. So there's going to be a need for more fine-grained resource allocation in uh, serverless. And I think ideally the providers should be able to take care of that automatically because uh, it is not really serverless if you need to specify how much resources you, you need for each of the workers. But at least at the moment, I think the incremental path, I think, would be to enable more customization for resource allocation. It could also include things like, like GPUs, for example. So if your function is doing some deep learning inference, which is a quite common use case these days. Uh, and if the function is, can be run, can run for a few minutes, so why not allocating a GPU and, doing the computa- and accelerating the computation with a GPU, which is something that happens already in other runtime models, so why not here? And I think there are other 
examples of customization of the runtime that will be required to optimize workload workloads that maybe they transitioned from non-serverless to serverless architecture now but and maybe they they probably benefited uh, a lot from that transition but now that they're they are already serverless there are obvious ways to make them more efficient and more efficient for the particular use case so it could be for example some latency requirements so there are a bunch of uh, open source uh, serverless projects these days that are focusing on providing low latency right which is probably difficult with the general purpose uh, container technologies that are being used like in the major uh, serverless offerings today so it could be about some specialized hardware it could it could be many different things so i think this uh, as more and more workloads are able to benefit from the elasticity and the ease of use of, of serverless there will be also demand for custom uh, runtimes and uh, uh, more customization so probably both in the public cloud space but also in the private cloud space that that might be one of the reasons but so maybe maybe certain solutions would not make enough sense as a general public cloud offering so there will be some tailored solutions for specific industries or specific uh, applications even that would expand the serverless philosophy and user experience and so on to additional uh, workloads. Cool. Makes a lot of sense. And I, I look forward to being able to properly mine Bitcoin on Lambda. Mm-hmm. Um, Tal, if, if, I, if I ask you this, so what's the security implication of some of these changes? Like let's, let's look at the 15 minute timeout, uh, which everybody was really excited about. How does that impact security in your view? Actually, I don't like it, but probably I'm, I'm having uh, the, the security point of view on every aspect. So, well, I think that it obviously gives the developer more time to to do their their stuff, which is what they like. But it also gives the attackers possibly uh, more time on the environment to run their their bad behaviors on the on the function or on the yeah, vulnerable uh, resource. I think that before that, and I'm afraid that we're going to lose that eventually, but maybe not. With uh, five-minute functions, we could really, really uh, fine-grained every service, what it needs to do. Oh, this is part of what we do here at Pritigo. So we could actually build a profile on that function of the specific uh, behavior it does. So if the function uh, does the thing over and over again, or connects to, or to a specific host or runs uh, a specific process, we could profile it into a uh, a behavioral uh, analysis of the function and protect the function from doing anything else that it needs. And I'm afraid that if we're going to go uh, with the 15 minutes to, I don't know, if it, if it will increase that we're going to uh, be back in that container state where function does a lot of things and it's hard to really understand what's needed uh, at the time. Of course, it, this yeah, makes it uh, even more important to start and automate the process of understanding the function of what it needs to do and how how long does it needs to run because sometimes functions run for uh, for they they are set for five or ten minutes and they only need a few seconds so the automating that thing could really help this is also part of what we do here so 
Yeah, so hopefully this just means people need our product more. That's great. Switching gears uh, uh, from that, I just want to do quick some, some quick updates. So one is touching on the 15-minute thing a little bit. We, we I just want to mention we released some research uh, you mostly did, and I'm just going to take credit for, uh, on building a serverless botnet. So, so you know, the, the notion that uh, something as ephemeral and stateless as serverless might be, you, could, you would imagine maybe it's hard to build something as persistent as a botnet on it, but actually, you know, we, we were showing how it's, uh, it's a nice platform to build a botnet on. You can build something that repeatedly reinvokes itself to keep itself alive at a very low scale for a while, and then when it's time to uh, perform some sort of attack, it actually leverages the fact that it can make instantly thousands or tens, tens of thousands of copies of itself and ramp up to a huge attack using your, you know, the, the, the infected infrastructure. So that's uh, some interesting work we did. There's a link on our website, maybe in the show notes, uh, to some of the research. And yeah, and obviously having 15 minutes to run gives the attacker more ability to, to, do, yeah. uh, to investigate the environment and the account and do some more bad stuff. Yeah. And then another thing I wanted to just update on was uh, something, something else you're working on is the OS Top 10 project. So that's not a Protego project, of course, but we're heavily involved in... Uh, in building out kind of what, what the top 10 security threats are for serverless and how they manifest and tell uh, you've been leading that project. So can you just talk a little bit about the status of it and, and what's going on? Yeah, so uh, we just released our few, uh, first report, uh, which takes the official uh, original uh, OS top 10, which everyone knows, and interprets, interprets it into the serverless uh, world, so how attacks are different and what are the new attack vectors, how do you defend against, defend against such attacks, and what is the impact to the to the organization? Which everything is different. You could you could go to the report, see that the same attacks that you known before, but see that uh, how everything changes. And uh, uh, we just launched the first report, and uh, I'm very happy and very excited. We have a lot of uh, interest uh, on that. Uh, we have a Slack channel, so a lot of people are joining in every day and uh, want to take part of it and that makes me happy to see that there are so many you know, people that wants to get involved and interested in the serverless and understand that serverless security is a thing that needs to be solved. Yeah, very cool. And lastly, I'll just mention uh, reInvent's coming up. A few of us uh, will be out there, so it's, it's a great place to talk to people who, about serverless and do things around serverless. And Tal, you're also presenting, I think, next week at, uh, at InfoSecurity North, North America, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, it's a big event that combines, some kind of a summit combines a few um, uh, security events in, uh, in uh, New York. And we're gonna, I'm gonna give a talk about sort of security. Very cool. All right, let's wrap up with our favorite part of the show. And that is our favorite tweets of the week. Uh, I'll start with me. Um, I grabbed a, a, a tweet uh, by Chris Munns from, from Amazon, uh, announcing the, the four year anniversary of Amazon. He, he put up a nice, release history over the past four years of Lambda. And, and it's really impressive how far the platform has come, how much they, you know, they do and how frequently they release new features. And, and we're only in, uh, in November and I know there's a bunch of cool things in the pipeline uh, you know, for reInvent and even after reInvent uh, for Lambda as well. So, and, and obviously Lambda is just you know, part of serverless and Lambda is just part of Amazon and there's other you know, vendors as well. And I just think the ecosystem has done a really good job of taking this from a, a concept, which I don't think anyone understood four years ago to a really full blown uh, architecture and this is a nice snapshot of that. So that, that's my tweet of the week. Alex, your tweet? Uh, so uh, my favorite tweet is by Ben Kehoe that I think he was your guest previously on this show. And he is talking about EC2 is the new on-prem. And I think what, uh, I mean, it's, it's a bit funny. I think what, what this really means, at least to me, is that EC2 is the 
kind of the new legacy that you move to move away from to new technologies like serverless uh, and I think this is uh, really what is happening these days uh, uh, in the cloud native applications uh, just a quick and example related to that so in in the cloud computing course that we are teaching here one of the projects that we are giving is so we, we give students a task and we are essentially saying them that uh, they can use any service as long as they don't own their own VMs. Uh, so they need to choose what, uh, which host services they want to use and they, they can use anything they want, but not just play any C2 instances. And I think this is a really interesting trend that will continue to evolve and it will be exciting to see how. Uh, yeah, uh, and it's a great tweet. And it's, it's always interesting to see how quickly things that were brand new just recently can become the legacy that we have to get away from. So uh, good, good, good call. Tell your favorite tweet of the week. Yeah, so uh, I chose a tweet by Troy Hunt. So usually I don't go with things that I'm, I'm more security focused or at least funny focused and not going to uh, things that talk about the cost change when moving to serverless. But in this case, he, uh, it's, he's speaking about how we move the have I been pawned. So it's a security side that uh, you go there and you see if your, uh, your records show up on uh, recently hacked uh, events. And he said how we moved everything to uh, Azure functions and his cost. So we have billions of invocations of execution units and uh, 77 millions of executions a month. And it costs him only $33.59. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely uh, one of those use cases that maps really well to both the cost savings and the flexibility of service. Yeah. Uh, very cool. All right, Alex, really great to have you on. Really appreciate your insights. Uh, um, you know, having we don't have a cloud guru on every single day, and having one from Carnegie Mellon is, is really exciting. You know, so really, thank you so much for being on. Uh, thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. And Tal, as usual, you're always uh, fun to have on. We will see everybody else uh, next time we do this. Thanks a lot.